0: friends, and welcome to episode 26 of the End of Sport podcast. Uh, my name is Nathan coleman Lamb, and I am here with Derek Silva. Hi, Derek. Hi, Nathan. <laughs> um, we still, still struggle with that, bit, but I still think you need to hear our voices at the beginning so you know who we are, in case you haven't before. Um... So we're not going to talk for long right now because we got another long show for you. Um, and it's a really important one uh, the, you know, we do every show we do because we're really excited to talk to the guests we book. Um, there are so many topics we want to get into, um, but this is one we haven't explored so much yet. And it's vital, the topic of um, native mascotry. Uh, and we have a chance to talk to Jacqueline Keeler uh, and she really breaks down for us exactly why it's a problem how she's fought it for years uh, and what's to come anything else there
1: yeah i just just think like she coined the term um so it, it, this was a, a an episode i was really looking forward to for so long because it's uh, it still surprises me that's 2020 and we still have the washington football loop um team around um and their, their name is, is still there so as always if you're enjoying the show please feel free to like share subscribe leave us a rating um and a review on on apple or, or google play that's always helpful and if you want to reach out to us please give us a follow dm us um, tag us on twitter at or instagram at end of sport pod um, or send us an email at the end of sport at gmail.com Enjoy the show.
0: Jacqueline Keeler is a Danae, Yankton, Dakota writer and activist, co founder of Eradicating Offensive Native Mascotry, editor in chief of Pollen Nation magazine, and editor of the collection Edge of Mourning Native American Writers Speak for the Bears' Ears. Her work has appeared in a wide range of venues, including the New York Times, The Nation, HuffPost, Salon, NBC News, and many, many others. Jacqueline, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you for
0: having me. It's a real pleasure to have you with us today. Um, And the first thing we want to ask you as we ask everyone is, how is the pandemic treating you? How are the rebellions treating you in Portland, Oregon?
2: Um, Well, it's pretty quiet. I mean, I think it's been just a time we've been sort of nesting with our family and uh it's been hard though because my mom lives four hours away up the columbia river and we went this past weekend to go see her for the first time in a long time and and we had to do social distancing and you know barbecuing outdoors and and uh and wearing we like masked up double masked up and stuff so it was just a lot of we weren't able to hug her and so it's that was probably that was really hard
0: yeah, I, I totally understand that. I, I'm in Durham, North Carolina, and my family is entirely uh, in Toronto, Ontario, in that area, um, Canada. And so, yeah, it's been a long time since we've seen folks, and we would have been back this summer, but like we we're not, we're not even supposed to cross that border, you know. At this point, that's what we feel like. Canada might let us back in because we're Canadian citizens, but uh, honestly, like we don't know if we get back across that border again or what happens. Um, so, yeah, I feel you on that for sure. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, listen, we have so much to talk about today, Um, and we really want to get into this question um, of native mascotry, which is finally seemingly getting some real, like, I mean, you and so many others have been fighting this fight for such a long time, but we seem like we are on the cusp of something hopefully major in terms of a shift with, for instance, team naming at some of the major professional sports franchises in North America. So we're absolutely going to dig into all of that. But I think really to understand that, uh, I don't think it's really possible to understand it without first grappling with the very concept of settler colonialism itself. Uh, and it's an issue that we haven't actually got into nearly as much in this show uh, so far as we would ultimately like to, and it was probably we should have, um, and certainly something we're going to focus on more moving forward. But tonight it's really today is really our first opportunity to get into it um, for our listeners. So it would be... Um, Really deeply appreciated if you could perhaps start by explaining what it means to describe the United States um, and, frankly, Canada, but we're mostly focusing on the United States as a settler colonial society and what it means to think of it as such, not just in historical terms, which I think for some, I mean, for most people, thinking of that, thinking of it in that way in historical terms is not that difficult to grapple with, but also as the current organization of social relations.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting i actually give this lecture about how the u.s is still a colony right and uh and i always say in function if not in overt state of form right and i don't really use settler that much because well i'm not an academic and and i i sort of think that i'm not really sure that settler it, it's almost it's almost too kind do you know what i mean because they don't settle really technically mm-hmm. i mean it's all about the profit motive and so settling is sort of a it's giving them too much credit for what they do. <laughs> yeah,
1: okay, yeah.
2: And uh, yeah. so I just call them colonists. I don't give them the privilege of even having any claim to this land at all. You know, they're colonists. They're here to make a profit. And they're here to, you know, what do colonists do? They go to other people's homelands and then export the profit back to their own ruling class. And I would say that the U.S. ruling class has no ties to this land, really. Um, and, uh, and they are sort of a, um, an extra national force. And um, and so I don't really I don't give them the privilege of being having any ties to this land. And so uh, so I just call them colonists. And one of the things I I think that I really hit upon this when I was uh, I was in the field, I was interviewing. I was covering the Keystone XL pipeline. This was back in 2000, I think, 2014. And I was interviewing um, I was interviewing uh, white farmers and ranchers in South Dakota and Nebraska. And they'd actually partnered up with uh, with the tribes there. Um, unlike at the Dakota Access Pipeline, with the Keystone XL pipeline, uh, you know there was uh, there was collaboration between the white um, landowners and and the tribes. And so, uh, but I was interviewing them, and they were completely. A lot of them, of course, are Republicans, right? But they uh, they were completely baffled. They were baffled by the fact. Uh, they looked at me, and they were like, "We can't believe our government, you know, uh, gave." Uh, governmental powers of eminent domain to a Canadian company, TransCanada, over their lands, over their property rights, right? And they were completely shocked by this. And I was looking at them and I remember thinking, don't you know the history of this country? I mean, did you miss that day in class, (laughs) you know, where they talk about, you know, uh, the Virginia colony, you know, and the Virginia, uh, you know, um, the Virginia Company of, you know, adventures based in London, you know, I mean, the, uh, you know, the very first colony in this uh, in, in this English uh, colonial endeavor here in this continent uh, was a joint stock company, right? One of the first earliest uh, forms of the modern corporation. And it was because the crown, you know, in this case, Queen Elizabeth the First Could not afford to fund colonialism and exploration right on her own so she had to turn to her subjects and so these corporations were created uh they were given governmental powers right and they came here and they were here for a profit motive i mean uh in writing the book standoff which i have coming out soon uh i I went back to jamestown i was actually invited to speak at the william college william and mary there and williamsburg and i went back and and you know there's like they the, it was, uh, you know, the uh, the English colonists there, they were tied to the bed if they didn't work hard enough, if they didn't make enough profit for the guys in London. You know, it was, and and, and they were, uh, it's, it, this is exact, this is the birth, this is the origin story of this country. You know, this mm-hmm. is the DNA, this is the algorithm that determines what it's going to do next, right? You can pretty much predict what it's going to do next based on the very definition of colonialism, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so <laughs> I felt like they didn't know their their own history or their own their own story, their own creation story, right? And then I compare that to the creation story of indigenous people, right? And I uh, I was looking for something that was just as easily easily explained as that of a colonist uh, a definition and. I found this quote actually in a book. My grandmother's cousin, her first cousin, was Vine Deloria Jr., who was a very well-known uh, Native scholar, um, and he wrote the book "Custer Died for Your Sins" and also uh, "God Is Read, You know, we speak, you listen. On the trail mm-hmm. of broken treaties, all those books that came out in the '60s and '70s, and um, and in one of his books, uh, I think it was "For This Land," he he gave a definition which I felt was really useful and. Basically, a people, you know, indigenous people often call themselves the people in their own language. A people with a capital P, they have an origin story based in a meeting with a spiritual being who was a manifestation of the land itself. And in this meeting, there are agreements made, promises made between us, the the people, and the other peoples that are already, already on that land and the land itself, right? And so, you know, if you look at my father's people, the Dakota and Lakota people, you know, we, our meeting was with the white buffalo calf woman. This meeting made us a people. My, my Lala used to say, we were not Dakota until we met the white buffalo calf woman. We were something else before that. But once we met her, we became Dakota. Of course, Dakota means friends. Mm-hmm. And with the Dakota Access Pipeline, they're using our name, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's sort of, uh, you know, and so she was a representation, a manifestation of the land of the Great Plains of which we were about to become a people. And when we met her, we had we made promises, we made agreements. And, and of course, she represents also the Buffalo Nation, right? The pipe, the Chawupa she gave us has the buffalo, the lake buffalo bone in it, you know, and so it's, um, so this was how we became a people of the Great Plains, whatever we were before, this is now what we were and, and, our, and our relationship our obligation who we are is all tied to that place, a very specific place on earth. We're not like a corporation. We can go somewhere, mess it all up, and then go somewhere else, right? And, and live in Greenwich or Connecticut or wherever we live. Do you know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and so we have, we're tied to this place. We're tied to the outcomes of this place. And so that's a very different algorithm. It has di- very different outcomes. So this is how I compare those two. Um, is standoff, I actually <laughs> I'm working on it, and I'm actually finishing up the manuscript, which is what I was working on today. And uh, and I compare the Bundy takeovers to Standing Rock as sort of these different mm. polar opposite things that happen that sort of define the last four years, right? And are, and have brought us to the place we are now. What they represent, and the and I go into a lot of the historical and philosophical origins of both movements, right? And I do compare two families. I compare my dad's family, the Delorias, and their philosophical um, sort of output over the last hundred and some years through writing and, and everything. And then also with the, with the Bundys and their philosophical, um, you know, background and, 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 you know, the whole movement, the, uh, the whole, uh, I guess, sagebrush rebellion, uh, sovereign citizen movement, and where the roots of that are, and how they're sort of, we're clashing right now, right? And, uh, and mm-hmm. you see it even today with people who are fighting wearing masks. While you see the tribes, on the other hand, take the science very seriously and are enforcing very careful public health regulations to preserve their people, right? So, and you see this particularly in uh, red states, right? Like, um, well, Arizona is becoming more of a purple state, but um, I'm a citizen of the Navajo Nation, Danette, and that's where and there's a huge, and they've just really done serious, like the most um, hardcore lockdowns, 52, 57 hour weekend lockdowns to keep our elders safe. And then you see that also, um, I, I do a podcast three times a week, uh, it's, it's got kind of a long title. It's for Pollination Magazine, and it's called Indigenous-Centered Conversations Around Coronavirus. And we actually started this in late March thinking that, well, we'll just talk about issues. Having, and then it's sort of expanded because all of the things that are going on during the pandemic. And so we ended up covering, interviewing uh, the Cheyenne River Sioux uh, Tribal Chairman and his whole fight with the COVID-19 checkpoints on his reservation to protect his people from uh, COVID-19. And, and the way in which the South Dakota governor, Governor Noam, was completely refusing to deal with it and, and opening everything up. And she was trying to force the tribes, these Lakota tribes to open up their borders so that they can get the virus. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, so there's a ways in which our communities, we understand the science and we, and we also value our people more than we value business as usual
0: yeah, yeah, wow, um, there's so much there, so uh, I asked you to do so much, and you really did uh, giving us like a huge picture kind of of the history the present moment, and how all the things we're thinking about are kind of connected to the larger project of colonialism and now I want to kind of bring it back to sport because you know that's that's sports not everything, but it's what we're here to talk about primarily um, so now that we have that context, I want to think a little bit about something you wrote in 2015 for Salon. You said, quote, We are the disappearing Indians riding out into the sunset. But really, we had to disappear, didn't we? For progress, for manifest destiny, for America to even exist. In very real ways, mascotting disappeared peoples and can be seen as a form of trophyism, like the head of a noble beast on the wall end quote. Given the context you've been talking about, how does native mascotry in the context of sport fit into the larger project of colonialism in North America? And I think a follow-up to this question might be, why are white fans so invested in racist mascots and nicknames? Why is Dan Snyder?
2: Yeah, I, I think um, it's very interesting. I uh, yeah, I, you know, I was born in Cleveland. Uh, my parents met there. Uh, they were on relocation. Uh, there was a policy uh, during the nineteen fifties and sixties and seventies. Uh, you know, Congress passed a law uh, to terminate tribes. Right, they wanted to terminate us politically, mm-hmm. and then they wanted to relocate the population, particularly the young people between the ages of eighteen and thirty, to urban centers. Right. And so this relocation program took place in many cities around the country. And Cleveland was one of these places. And so when my parents arrived there, there were like 20,000 young Native people there between the ages of 18 and 30. And and this is when the movement to to get rid of the mascot, to get rid of the Cleveland Indian Chief Wahoo mascot began, was with this this real concentration of young Native people suddenly in the city of Cleveland, which had not happened. um, I mean, you know, uh, the Shawnee leader, Tecumseh. You know, the, the Revolutionary War was fought in large part to gain access to our lands, you know, because King George III was enforcing the uh, proclamation line of 1763 as part of the agreement to end the Seven Years' War, and, um, or the French and Indian War, as it's known here. And, um, and so this really made the colonists angry because a lot of colonists, like George Washington, who actually helped start that war, which is considered World War Zero, um, you know, they, had, uh, vested in, they, they, had, they were land speculators in, in Indian Territory particularly in the Ohio Valley. And so, uh, so Ohio, you know, w- one of the first things they did after they won the Revolutionary War was, of course, Tecumseh and all of the Shawnee and all those, they fought to retain their lands and they lost, you know, at falling timbers. And, and after that, they were moved. And so this arrival of all these young Native people in the 60s to uh, Cleveland was the first time there were a large number of Native people in Ohio, you know, and um, since like, you know, the early 1800s. Uh, and so it's, um, so yeah, so it was an interesting moment. Um, so my, you know, I grew up hearing my parents talking about fighting the mascot. I didn't really pay a lot of attention, I have to be honest, because <laughs> that was something that happened like when <laughs> they were young and before I knew them, really. And um, and I didn't really watch sport. I didn't watch, um, you know, um, uh, that kind of thing. And so it was sort of something in the background to my life until I went to Dartmouth and I was confronted with the mascot there, uh, the Indian mascot, and I met Susan Harjo. And you know she was she really informed us on a lot of things at that point. And um, but I um, but yeah to get to your question about you know why it's such it's so it was at Dartmouth that I really began to realize I suddenly realized that this was such a difficult thing for white Americans and even other Americans of color uh, to understand and uh you know we they had gotten rid of the native mascot at dartmouth in like in 19, the 1970s like 1973 or something a long time before i was there and yet it was always there the the um the uh <laughs> the conservative alumni were constantly trying to bring it back they ran this paper called the um dartmouth review which was kind of a subsidiary of the um of the conservative paper um the review and um and so i uh so they were constantly giving out Dartmouth Indian t-shirts and we were always fighting on the native students that were there. And, um, and so, and then I just trying to talk to my roommate about it. You know, she was a white uh, girl from Massachusetts and she, to her, it was just a free Indian t-shirt, a free Dharma t-shirt with an Indian on it. And I'm like, we try, we tried to explain to her, but she literally could not understand what we were talking about. And that was when I realized that, wow, this is something, there's something weird going on here. that They can't even see that this is a problem, like literally cannot see it. And, um, and so, and research backs that up, you know, um, research... Uh, um a research uh done by Dr. Stephanie Freiberg, you know, it really I would recommend reading. Uh it really shows the ways in which it's harmful to native youth being exposed to native mascots. You know, she found that uh native youth exposed to native mascots um it lowered their self-esteem, their ability to have faith in their plans for the future. It, it just does a lot of terrible things. Uh but research done even more recently um found, found, <laughs> funded by the Kellogg Foundation in 2018 found that um that uh, they did focus groups of white people, um, college age and older, and what they found was that um, that they only believed that we were human up to sixty percent, which means that they thought we were forty percent animal, right? And uh, and then also they found that uh, seeing other white people dressed in red face, just like you know in blackface, it actually makes uh, white people feel better about themselves, and it's actually a way of, of sort of marking out um, their group, their in-group identity as white people. So, and they get an incredibly positive sort of feeling from it. And so this is what we are fighting It's a sort of positive in-group experience of basically mm-hmm. wearing and claiming another um, people's identity for fun, right? It has an incredibly positive um, sort of, it raises the self-esteem and also increases the level of, um, of, of sort of uh, downstream or you know, further, you know, uh, sort of negative stereotypes of other groups as well. Uh, so it has. It's a quite damaging thing, and it's um, and it's not entirely what I found. And, and this is something I wrote about in um, my latest piece in Pollination Magazine. What not your mascot owes the Black Lives Movement is uh, Black Lives Matter movement is um, is uh, is that uh, it was not an argument we could win through logic, or through simply you know appealing uh, or explaining the issue. Uh, to other Americans, even Black Americans, you know. And so it was quite a difficult issue to get across. And and this is what all of our different me- um, stratagems were up against um, and, and why they, to a certain extent, failed. You know, um, I would say that what finally won the, um, basically made this win possible, we did the groundwork as a community, but what made the real win possible was that the Black Lives Matter movement the uh, protests against George Floyd's death and Breonna Taylor's, you know, basically changed the basically it changed the playing. It altered the parameters of the playing field. And suddenly the arguments we've been making for so long that we're not making any headway suddenly had the ability to really suddenly people were like, well, yeah, we have to change that, too. You know, just like seeing all the Columbus statues falling, you know, seeing all these things that we as Native people have been protesting and trying to argue against. And and for a very long time, I mean, I actually, my husband is from Six Nations in Canada, and, you know, his ancestors fought against the Americans, and that's why they ended up in Canada. They lost their homelands in New York State. And, uh, but um, his grandfather, or, yeah, his, his great-grandfather, actually, Hilton Hill, who was the Seneca chief up there, at the Grand River Reserve at Six Nations in Auschwitz. and he wrote a. We found a opinion piece he wrote in the 1950s um, opposing mascots, mascoting Native people, right? And so I thought that was quite interesting. I mean, I often say it's but three. My 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 son protested for the Nike World headquarters here in Beaverton, and uh, you know against the Chief Wahoo mascot. And I was thinking, God, this is the third generation in my family that's protested this. You know, it's depressing, and. Uh, and then, but to see that actually my husband's great-grandfather, uh, Hilton Hill, you know, had, had been writing against it, you know, it, it, it's, that makes it even, I mean, how many generations is that, <laughs> you know, it's just, um, it, it's pretty incredible. But yeah, I really do credit the Black Lives Matter movement for changing the parameters of the discussion, making this unacceptable and, and making this victory possible.
1: Yeah, I think in in a recent piece you you just published with uh, Pollination, you you talked about the connection between Black Lives Matter and and what's happening, and and you said I think very powerfully, and I'm quoting now, um, but without Black Lives Matters activism and changing the playing field, all this work um, done by all are by anti-native um activists would still be a story of some victories. Um, thousands of high school, uh, high schools and colleges sort of changing their names and stubborn professional teams still skeptical um, uh, and and fans refusing to um, make a change. So I say we owe this victory to the struggle of the black community. We always do. They are, in a sense, our leaders in this country for social justice, always have been. Every success we have ha- we have had has been made possible by their courage and sacrifice. And I think those are like really powerful words. And I really, I'm hoping to hear more about how you understand the relationship between Black Lives Matter and anti-colonial movements in this country.
2: Yeah. I think, you know, it's, you know, when I was a child, I used to ask my mom, you know, well, my mom would talk to me a lot about things. She's a, she's Navajo and she was raised, you know, my grandparents were traditional Navajos. They didn't speak English. And, uh, and, you know, my grandmother wove rugs and my grandfather, you know, they had, they had a ranch, they have a ranch near the South rim of the grand Canyon. And, um, and I would, I, you know, she would ask, you know, she would kind of explain to me, like the way she used to explain it to me was that the, that the black community are like our older brothers and that they, they help us and they look out for us, yeah. you know, and, um, and, uh, my, my father was an engineer and, and his, his boss was, 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 was black and, uh, and, you know, we definitely felt like, you know, he he was on our side. <laughs> Do you know I mean, it's sort of like, you know, they make they make the headway first. They get there, you know, and then they they give others, you know, they, they give others a, a, a step up. They, you know, they help us. And and uh, and then, you know, when I was talking to my grandma's cousin, Vine Deloria Jr., I, I was asking him, so where did the, where did the Red Power Movement really get started? And of course, he had written, uh, you know, Custer died for your sins, which is considered they came about nineteen sixty eight or sixty nine and it was it's considered the seminal sort of um, you know uh, book about uh, you know kind of starting the the, the philosophical groundwork of uh, of um you know the red power movement of, of native of indigenous rights in the united states and and i and he told me he said well it was a civil rights movement do you mean and and once again it's you know they made you know, when I look at the change that happened, I mean, the termination policy uh, to terminate tribes politically and disappear us from the face of the earth was ended in 1970 by Nixon, shockingly enough, and uh, and then the new um, sort of period now where where our our sovereignty is is recognized in, in more concrete ways by the federal government and. Uh, and of course, now you see the ruling that happened today with this from the Supreme Court, uh, you know, uh, finding that uh, you know the Muscogee Creek under treaty still and, and two other tribes, you know, still have criminal jurisdiction over eastern Oklahoma, right? And uh, and so it's uh, this has um, been a long pathway to reach this point from almost being uh, terminated uh, to uh, to this point, and uh, and so I do think that you know at least my family, I've always heard them credit. Uh, The, you know, the, the, um, the social movements of black people, there are significant ways in which we differ, uh, and in ways in which we inspire each other, I would say the Fissions here in the Pacific Northwest certainly inspired civil, you know, civil rights actions as well. There's a back and forth. Um, But, um, but the, um, but, uh, yeah, I would say that it's, it's quite, um, yeah, I think it's it's something that I you know we they, they remade the map of what we can do in America today. These things wouldn't be happening without their fight. and And you know I think that all people of color should recognize that and particularly people of color who, because of colorism in this country, who perhaps have, um, you know I mean, I think who who enjoy a slightly slightly more privilege and an incredibly uh, color conscious society like America is um should probably um
1: pay attention to that a lot more than they do. Yeah, no, absolutely and and one of the the you mentioned um Stephanie Freiberg's research and I, I was just like really struck um that the focus group study also found that only thirty percent of white um white people college age and older are even sympathetic to um anti-colonial movements in sport. And I I found that like Um, not shocking, but like, like troubling sad, like all of the, like everything. Um, and, and this always gets me to think of like why, and we've, we've kind of already talked about this briefly. Why is it so hard to get sports fans like to let go of like something as simple as, as a name? And, and this brings me, I think generally to a a question I want to ask you, um, in a, in a Dallas morning news op-ed you ask a, a rhetorical question that I'd like to turn around and also pose to you. Ask yourself why no other ethnic group is depicted as a mascot at the, at the same scale as Native Americans. So I, I'd like to ask you, why, why not?
2: Ka, that's a good question. I think it's definitely tied to this triumphalism, the taking of the land and, take in, and the extinguishment of us as a people. You know, I think uh, this is how it's perceived. Of course, it's we're still here. Right. And uh, and it's, uh, you know, I I, I often people often bring up the Vikings and things like that. And I often point out, well, it would be the same if that was the only way you ever saw white men was as a Viking. Like literally Mm -hmm. you only ever saw them as mascots and you never saw a white man, you know. I don't know. uh, On TV, reading the news uh, as president of the United States, you never saw a white family featured in a TV sitcom. You never saw a white man, you know, saving the world in a Hollywood film. And you walked into like a bookstore, like we have here in Portland, Oregon, Powell's Bookstore, and maybe five books are written from your perspective as a protagonist. I would say I've never read a book written from the perspective of someone like me ever. You know, imagine living in that world. And then the only thing that you're seen as, and and it's in a very you know historical framework of the past, um, is as a Viking. And what would be the first thing people would say when they meet you, right? Where's your helmet with the horns? Where's your longboat? You know, this is. (laughs) So I mean, it's not a comparison really to compare with Vikings because there are many ways in which white men and women are portrayed in the society, right? And, And and so it's this complete exclusion of other. Portrayals that leads to mascotry, and and I actually coined the word mascotry <laughs> to explain because uh, people were like, well, "What? What do you? How can you have a problem with this mascot? It's this noble warrior, right?" And I was just like, "Well, it, that's not the problem. I, you know, it's the problem is actually all the things they do with the mascot, right? All the you know the tomahawk chops, you know the Pocahontas outfits, you know the use of sacred regalia, you know uh, the misuse, misappropriation of it." And and you know all of the and the and the reinforcement of stereotypes which excludes our actual lived realities, right? And uh, and so you know when you I, I've actually had people white people in this country tell me that I'm the first native person they've ever met, right? And 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 oh you guys are still I mean literally you guys are still around, you know? And, and you can see the way in which all of our activism is not heard when people have never even met a native person that they know of, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, abso- absolutely. And and frankly, you're bringing you're bringing us right to the next question we had, which is how you developed. Um, so like, we were well aware that you coined the term uh, mascotry. And it's, it's a sort great of not, word. It is a great word. It's and great,
1: that, that, very, That's right. And then useful. not your
0: very useful term. And also the not your mascot campaign, uh, the sort of social media campaign hashtag not your mascot um, was incredibly productive. As well, in terms of, I think, confronting exactly what you're describing, this complete kind of ignorance, frankly, that so much of U.S. society has about the history. And I mean, like the historical perspective, looking backwards and also how that history has built a present moment of the sort of lived experiences of indigenous people like yourself who are forced to endure these kind of, you know, beyond belief, repugnant images, uh, appropriative images disgustingly commodified images um so I'd love to talk about that now talk about how you have kind of fought um have fought these horrific images over the last six years because you know as as you kind of pointed out earlier we may be seeing a change maybe seeing a change um in the coming days and weeks um and it's something that you've long wanted but this change isn't overnight because like fedex wants to change right it's like fedex didn't lay the groundwork for this fedex didn't do anything fedex was complicit in this just like all these other corporations were it's the work of people like yourself that have created the conditions where it's possible for us to change these names um but i'd I'd love for you to talk us through a little bit and, and give our listeners a sense of what that story is like how did you create that um not your mascot campaign Um, And in general, what has been the nature of the activist work you've had to engage in in order to fight these loathsome, racist practices of cultural appropriation and distortion?
2: Yeah. And uh, I, it's interesting, one of my friends was saying that she, uh, she's a Native artist and she would like to take it beyond cultural appropriation to economic colonialism, which I thought was a very mm-hmm. strong term. But, and I yeah. would like to also uh, recognize Susan White. Um, she, uh, she passed away before this happened, um, sadly we lost her to cancer, and she was one that led the investor um, sort of fight. Uh, she, was the, uh, she managed the Oneida Trust for the Oneida Tribe of Wisconsin. And and she's the one that really led the FedEx and Nike um, sort of stockholder um, sort of movement, right? And uh, but uh, but yeah, I um, uh, with with not your mascot. We actually I was sort of got involved with it in two thousand thirteen, and we were using change the name, change the mascot, and uh, and then suddenly uh, in the fall or late fall of of. 2013, um, we started getting our, our, our tweets were getting buried by all of these tweet, Twitter accounts from India, right? And they were tweeting about buying land, real estate in India. And they were using our hashtag, right? Using change the name, change the mascot. And so we were entering, we wanted to really do something during the Super Bowl, but we were entering the Super Bowl without a hashtag, without a functioning hashtag, right? So we talked about it. We're mostly a group of native parents. Right. And we were like, what do we do? And so we decided to uh, create our own hashtag, a new one. and keep it secret until we launch it. Right. So we uh, so we thought about it. And it was actually a Cherokee mother from Oklahoma, Jenny Stokel, who came up with Not Your Mascot. I, you know, it, it may have been used before, but this was sort of, we, we kind of, and I so we were like, yes. And so I sent out an email to all of, we actually went through our Twitter accounts in 2013 and looked at our biggest followers that we had and and we contacted them directly. And, and many of them responded, I mean, even Chuck D and, and uh, who else was, <laughs> Yoko Ono? <laughs> all these people who were, who oh, were just yeah. randomly following me at the time. I have no idea why. And, um, <laughs> and so we, and they agreed to help. And you know to tweet it out for us, and so the night before we decided to launch it on a Saturday, the night before the um, the uh, Super Bowl. So we did a test, kind of a test run, and we sent out an email revealing the hashtag to everyone, and then folks started tweeting it, you know, and uh, and we managed to trend it the first night, and actually, and, and it's so funny, the first place we trended it was at Six Nation, the Six Nations Reserve in Canada. <laughs> my in-laws and uh and then we (laughs) trended it nationally and then we did it again the next day we were really surprised because we thought there'd be a lot more competition on actually the super bowl day and Mm -hmm. uh and so that was how we did that and why we did it we probably would never have done it and we actually suspected that dad snyder was behind that that he had hired a bunch of you know some sort of troll farm in india and like you know just you know buried that hashtag you know
1: it's very on brand
2: Yes, yes. So we, we had a very strong, so that's why we kept it so secret and we only let people no, I mean, you know, just a very limited number of people know, but we still managed to trend it. And so, uh, you know, we built this whole tweet list up and sent it out. And as people got interested, you know, we would share it with them. And, um, and so, yeah, so we did that. We, and we, we went through and, you know, used different hash tracker, um, hashtag tracker um, sort of software to look at the reach we had. And it was like a lot for, I mean, the native community is very small. We don't have a lot of access to media. Uh, to tell our stories in a comprehensive way, besides doing that every the story they do every ten or twenty years, like oh my God, there's poverty, you know, this poverty porn thing, you know, and um, but uh, but yeah, so we were able to like reach I think the first like 24 million, uh, you know, um, different timelines. And so we knew wow. this was a pretty powerful tool to reach out, and then, uh, then we continued. Uh, we just, you know, would, I actually refined a lot of my arguments by arguing with with trolls, um, uh, with uh, with Washington NFL team trolls, and. Uh, fans and i and then when i did public speaking things like i was on msnbc and so that night i was able to just really you know when you have had to refine your arguments down to 140 characters
1: <laughs> you're like
2: bang bang you have a doubt you know and, and I, so it was actually very educational for us to talk to them in this because we didn't know what white people thought and it was some, it was actually sort of surprising, you know, and, uh, cause you know, in real life, they're not going to tell us this stuff to our face, you know, but on Twitter, they will be very you know, open about telling us what they really think. And, uh, <laughs> and it was actually really helpful to us and, uh, to talk to trolls. And, uh, so, uh, but, and then we later, um, uh, later, I guess, you know, we started, um, uh, Snyder started fighting back against us, do you know what I mean? <laughs> he actually hired a vice president of social media. And, and it's funny because I actually, we had this whole group of Native mothers across the country and they were monitoring everything he was doing, right, in their communities and also, you know, online. And actually I had on my podcast last week, uh, Francis Danger, who is a Native mother, whose child had been actually, you know, insulted and tormented at school with these different mascots sort of um, – the stereotypes, right? And uh, and so she uh, she saw that this guy had been hired, and she sort of noticed that he had deleted his entire blog like he had before. And uh, and so she got curious, so she went on the Wayback Machine and for two days went through his blog, and then she found these racist tweets where he was, you know, saying really racist things about Native Americans at a casino, right, after he lost money there. And so we, I, you know, I, I, I've been... You know, a journalist, and 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 so we sent out. We you know, we had certain you know journalists who we knew were interested in these stories, um, particularly at outlets like Deadspin and USA Today and uh, Buzzfeed and stuff. And so we sent these out, and uh, and and some of they they wrote about them, and then it sort of moved up the food chain to other <laughs> outlets. And uh, and and so we and, and so within 24 hours of us putting that story out there, he was fired. He was gone. He resigned, actually. And uh, so we are and then we did the same thing when he was going around with his foundation, his original Americans Foundation, which actually that, you know, that spells oath. Right. Hmm. And which we felt was an insult, you know. And so we uh, so uh, he was secretly going around flying around his plane, his private plane to all these Native American communities and trying to sort of implicitly buy support by giving the money. And, you know, he's building these playgrounds on, on reservations, all completely like, you know, tagged with, you know, the, their 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 mascot and everything for Native children to play on. And, uh, and, and I was getting phone calls, or phone calls, I was getting emails, messages, and, and, you know, they were sending me all kinds of information about what he was doing, and we were able to plug those into the media. And about every two weeks for quite a while, we were able to just embarrass him in the national media. And we were able – and as you noted, you know, we, we there is not a lot of comprehension of the issue by white America, um, you know, uh, but people were able to really get the idea that uh, people – the story of a billionaire doing dumb things was a big story, and, and it was actually poisoning his brand. And and so in that way, we were able to get score some points, I think, uh, so um, in a more indirect way. And and so and I should note that that same study found that um, although 30% of, uh, of white Americans didn't, um, white people in the focus group, did not under, weren't, weren't sympathetic to the mascot issue, almost 80% were to Standing Rock. And it gives you an idea that they're, these issues um, play and are stood in different ways. Um, and, and this was a much tougher issue to fight.
0: I don't want to belabor the next point because you've had to spend a lot of time in the last few years addressing this next point. And I don't think it matters that much in the grand theme of things, but I think it does fit into the narrative you are describing, which is a narrative to a significant measure about how Dan Snyder and these teams, you know, have consciously, actively tried to thwart your activism, right? Like they've fought to protect these racist names and symbols. And one way was this absolutely atrocious Washington Post poll, right? Oh, God. Um, totally infamous, nightmarish poll that is making this kind of claim that, in, that indigenous people across the United States favored the name, right? And therefore the name was legitimate. I'm not asking you to refute that for the thousandth time because you've have more than adequately done so in many venues over the last few years. But just like, can you just maybe talk a little bit about the sort of challenge of that and sort of how that fits into the story?
2: Yeah. So I, I wrote a piece in the Nathan, the nation magazine uh, addressing the Washington post poll. Right. And, and and I have to say that the nation did a great job vetting it and also, you know, checking all my information and also getting, getting a response from the Washington post comment. And uh, so, but the, uh, when I looked at the data and uh, what was really apparent to begin with was that the, uh, (laughs) that they didn't verify that anyone was actually native who answered the poll. And this was the same problem with the Annenberg poll that many people cited before. Uh, the Annenberg poll that, that people were citing was like done in Pennsylvania. It was like one of like 150 questions for a local election. And uh, and everyone was like, oh, my God, look at, you know, all these Native Americans. And so think that it's OK. But when you go to self-identification, you run into problems like what we see with Warren, where people think they're Native or they are opportunistically Native over the phone. Yes. Right. Yeah. And uh, and so and then I noticed a lot of the respondents were from the Deep South, from like, I don't know Alabama Arkansas I can't remember exactly now, but they uh, and uh, and they were over the age of fifty. They're what they are men over the age of fifty from like Arkansas, right? Mm-hmm. And that is not a huge demographic in any country, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. First yeah. of all, sadly the uh, the um, the age that Native men die is very young. I would say by the time my dad was fifty five, he was like I'm the only person left from my high school class. Do you know what I mean so I mean, Native just, men die at a very young age? So the I'll just idea, pause and
0: say how horrifying that is. By the way, right? Exactly. Like, I mean, they don't want to gloss over that. That's that's so disturbing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So,
2: so a poll where thirty percent of the men are over the age of fifty. I mean, come on, those are white men.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. And yeah. Uh, and then from Arkansas, where Alabama, where they are actually where they removed the tribes and forced marched them to Oklahoma. Do you know what I mean it's just like yeah, this is not this is a bunch of white people in the South claiming to be Indian to answer a poll. You know, and it's interesting because, uh, Nate Silver, uh, his podcast did a, a show on it and, um, and he was very dismissive of my arguments. He was like, who would lie about being Indian?
0: Oh, Nate Silver. Oh, great. Okay. Yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> who would do that? That's ridiculous. That doesn't happen.
0: Oh boy. Yeah. Oh. And
2: it was just like, oh my God. And one of his fellow pod, his, his other podcasters was like, oh, well, it seems like, and he was just very dismissive of what she had to say, you know? And, um, and it was just, uh. No, I mean, people really do lie about being native. It's really super common. And actually, you know, even what I call, I guess I've been sort of pushing this term, or I don't know if I created the term, but people seem to, uh, but it's uh, pretendianism, you know, where people pretend to be Indian for a living, right? Sure. And um, and it's, uh, and, you know, I've done stories on this, not by choice. I didn't even know this was an issue growing up, because for me, being Indian was not a choice. It was. It was it was it was you know it's difficult to be brown in this country to be something that people don't understand um you know i think uh and you know my grandfather my dakota grandfather you know was beaten to death by the police you know oh, and sorry, no. uh, and yeah i mean in police custody and uh we didn't even know this until um probably 2015 uh, my cousin uh, was on Ancestry.com, and she did a search for my grandmother's name, and she found a newspaper article about it. My my grandmother and my aunts and uncles just never spoke of it. It was so painful, so traumatic. My grandfather was three-quarters Dakota, you know, and, um, and you know, he was obviously a brown man, right, and he was beaten to death by the police in Yankton, South Dakota, in a white city. Uh, near our reservation on formerly on our reservation lands that that bears our name right and and so you know and my father was almost shot to death at 18 by the local sheriff you know i did an article about how he was he was almost trayvon martin you know i mean native men are hunted in this country you know and and so the idea that someone just choose to be indian do you mean because it's yeah. it's it's there's some advantage to be gained. It's pretty horrible, it's, you know.
0: It's really disgusting. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And so, uh, so yeah. So I started, and, and we've you know we've we've actually outed a lot of pretendians, you know, particularly in academia. There's a real preference. People want to save these lost Indians <laughs> who've been white all these years, <laughs> and uh, you yeah. know, it's just uh, it's just pretty crazy. I mean, I I don't know. I can't pretend to be white. You know, and, that, and right. that really does define my experience in this country. You know, I mean, I am, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, my mother is full-blooded Navajo, uh, and, uh, and it's just, you know, it's just something that, it's not a choice for us, and it's yeah. not something that we profit off of. I mean, my cousins, I have 50 first cousins, all tribally enrolled in different tribes across the United States, and almost none of them make their living being professional Indians. It's not a thing. And uh, and the only people who do that are white people pretending to be Indian.
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. That's brilliantly that's brilliantly said. That's that's the best um, rebuttal to that Washington <laughs> poll post I've ever heard. So uh, yeah, yeah, thank thank you for that. That's that's really perfect. Um I wanna talk a little bit about Nike now, partly because I just I get really caught on Nike because um, you know, it's not just this issue. This is a great example of Nike's you know, just cynical commodification of anything they can possibly commodify, basically. Um, and, you know, so we've talked about how Colin Kaepernick, for instance, right, has been commodified by Nike. And this, that's not, that's not uh, a condemnation of Colin Kaepernick um, because he has done amazing work and was put in an extremely difficult position. But it's to talk about how Nike is more than willing to sort of take up the symbol of racial justice if it's going to sell some jerseys right i mean they're comfortable yeah. doing that and they're comfortable selling chief wahoo jerseys um doesn't mean it doesn't make any difference to them uh they'll sell whatever they can and they understand how to exploit different markets in different ways um, exactly yeah so th- but the thing i want to touch on because i think that this is really interesting to me and something i didn't know as much about as i should is that so you've obviously been talking about the fact that you've had this investor strategy right like you want to shame these investors, but the fact that their companies are invested in these racist symbols. And that is something that they should reject on basic moral grounds, right? And make it difficult for them to stand aligned with those symbols, as they are struggling to do right in this moment, right? And and this this is the connection you've made. In this Black Lives Matter moment, how can FedEx Stand before the world and make some kind of Black Lives Matter solidarity statement, and the same, and the same, um, by the same token, engage in this act of red face, right? It's just, it's bullshit. You can't do that. You can't do that at the same time. And so you force their investors into this position where they have to then divest de- from, um, from this brand in that sense, right? So it's clear, but the Nike thing that's so. I don't know. It seems so troubling to me. And I, I, I actually haven't heard you talk about this, but I, and you may have talked about it in some other venue. I just haven't heard you talk about it, but I feel like you've gestured at it. I've seen you gesture at it on Twitter. Is the fact that the company has this N7 campaign, right? Which has to do with um, I- Indigenous people being marketed through the brand, Nike. And I, I, don't, I think you know a lot more about this than I do. So please correct me about anything I'm wrong about here. Um, so we have that on one hand, and that to me is like, could be read then as an appropriation of indigenous justice movements of anti-colonial movements that you have been engaged in at the same exact moment that they are sponsoring all these teams and selling all these jerseys and merchandise and everything else that is fundamentally racist. Has that N7 campaign undermined your sort of investor strategy around Nike?
2: Yeah. So it was not my investor strategy. It was Susan White's investor strategy and, uh, and yeah. uh yeah my my aunt married my now one of my mother's sisters married into the tribe um the united tribe there in wisconsin and she connected me with her friend susan white who i'd like to honor because she did not live to see this day do you know I mean and so and she was head of the united trust which had nike stock right and so i met with uh with uh their uh trillium in investment uh that was managing their investments with nike and uh and and that's how we uh address that but the um Truly investments here in Portland, Oregon. And, uh, but the, uh, so the way I was involved with it was that I helped lead, I, I led uh, protests at Nike World Headquarters in Beaverton, Oregon. And, uh, and my husband's company is located right near Nike World Headquarters. And so I would drive by there and I'd see people protesting all the time, right? And then, uh, and then one day we were invited to help uh, with the dechief hashtag. Right. Uh, that was a hashtag started by uh, mostly non-native uh, uh, Cleveland uh, fans and um, 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 uh, uh, baseball fans. And uh, and they were basically cutting out the the chief Wahoo mascot out of their gear and then posting photos of it online with the hashtag D chief, Right. And they invited us to join them on a sort of what well, we called them Twitter storms. That's what was our term for that. <laughs> and, um, and so we sort of, you know, marshal our small little, you know, minority group and take on Twitter. And, uh, but the, uh, and so we were doing a Twitter storm, helping D chief. And, uh, and some guy sent me this tweet and he's like, this is for all the D bag, you know, uh, uh, D chief people. And he went to Nike to their website and purchased this um, this warm-up jacket that had Chief Wahoo on it next to the Nike swoosh, right? And I realized when I looked at that, I was like, wait, Nike is making, is legitimizing this horrific, grotesque uh, you know, mascot, right? Yes, and, yeah. and so I was like, well, you know, I always see those people there protesting. I should, we should do that. Do you know what I mean? And so I talked to the native community here in Oregon. We've been sort of years previously, we'd organized under I don't No More Port- Portland. And so we were the, and, and really, Idle No More Portland, you know, they were 30% of the people who gathered together to, to trend, not your mascot. So many people don't realize that the Portland Native community played a big role in that. And, uh, and so we got a bunch of elders and folks to come out, and a lot of them in the regalia, and we, like, went and we protested in front of Nike World Headquarters, and you know, a lot of the employees would honk in support of us and everything. And uh, so we did that. And we wrote. And I wrote a, I wrote a letter to Nike, and I was just like, you know, we really appreciate everything you do doing with In Seven, but you know, we would like some consistency. You know, we would like the right hand to be doing what the left hand is doing. <laughs> On one hand, you're mm-hmm. profiting off of Wahoo and horrible things like Fear the Spear for, for for Florida State and all this stuff, and uh, and you know, we really need you to do be consistent in your actions. Right. And, and so we did this protest. And then um, like a week later, we got a response from their attorneys. Right. And their attorneys were like, um, you know, we uh, the Cleveland community has had this discussion for quite a while and they have come to the decision that it's OK. That the Wahoo mm-hmm. mascot is okay. And I'm like, huh? That's news to the Cleveland native community, <laughs> of yeah. which my parents were a part since the 60s, right? And uh, and I was just like, okay. And and they're like, oh, so if you know, and I, but I had, so I responded. I was like, you know, if a community decided that you know, Sambo was okay, would you put that next to the 90s? I <laughs> mean, some sort of horrific, you know, um, sort of uh, stereotypical mascot of another. Uh, ethnic group, you, they wouldn't. Do I mean? And so uh, this was obviously just a, a you know they were not even addressing our issue, and um, and then they had the in every two years they had the N7 conference here in Portland at their world headquarters, and N7 is an initiative to create a Native American shoe, right? And and they use Native American feet to pattern them because of diabetes and stuff like that, and they sell them through Indian Health Service clinics, and then. It was actually the idea of a Native employee who worked in the warehouse, right? It was his idea. And uh, and so, uh, so then they donate the proceeds to the Native community, right? And uh, and so, uh, and there are issues with this program. One issue being that, uh, and it was brought up by uh, Navajo anarchist, Klee <laughs> Benali, which is that these shoes are made in sweatshops, right? How does this, you know, what does this have to do with us if it's made in a sweatshop? Number two, uh, when they hire designers, native designers, they don't allow them to actually design anything. It's basically more of a, um, what do you call it, a licensing deal of their art, right? And then the designers from Nike apply it to the clothing and the different things. And then two, I received reports from uh, Indian Health Service clinic workers that they were being pressured to sell these super expensive um, sneakers to native people right And on top of that the money apparently was coming the money they were donating to us were coming out of the sneakers we were buying <laughs> and and then uh, according to uh, congressional statements made by the head of this program, they, the amount they had donated to the native community amounted to eleven dollars per kid like eleven dollars for my kid huh. to be purchased right. to support mascotry right and uh, and so it was just a really. I don't know. And so they, uh, so we protested that and and I was told by a local Native American um, executive director of a nonprofit that he was contacted by the head of INSEB and he screamed at him for allowing elders from his program to to attend our protests, right, and threatening him with, you know, for donations and stuff like that. And so, and actually, we got a lot of pushback also from native celebrities, <laughs> they exist. And, and they were like, you know, they like on their Instagram, like, oh, look what in seven gave me, you know, look at this swag. And, you know, and they were very upset at this protest because it endangered like whatever little income they were getting from that. And one of the Nike designers, his friend told me, well, you know, my friend said that when he got the Nike, you know, contract design, these shoes that his kids would never have to work at sweatshops. And so we were facing a lot of pushback from even in within our own community who who were financially had financial self interest in this, and um, and so it was it was a difficult moment. I mean, it was difficult to push that 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 sort of that invest that sort of um, fight to taking the fight to the companies, especially when they have a program like In Seven, and and so it was it was tough. You know, I think that. Um, <laughs> i think it got a bit i mean i don't know i had the support of a lot of people in the portland native community so i didn't feel it so much here right and mm-hmm. uh but i definitely was you know i i i understood you know but i also understood that it was very important to do and so uh but it was a difficult moment
1: you you mentioned something really striking to me and and This this may be like a long-winded question, so I apologize if I if I'm kind of asking ten questions in the in the same um, in the same vein. But you mentioned like discussions of um, like consulting with communities, with indigenous communities, and like that. Typically, like the response is, oh, we've received like no consensus um, that this is offensive or whatever. Like um, with the Cle- uh, Cleveland Indians and, and that in and the logo, they had the first sort of response was to like, have a review let's like speak with people and there's no consensus that it's um that is problematic the the um, washington football team is also like first response to all these things is like oh let's launch a review in february uh, in canada the edmonton canadian football league team also did the same thing like we had a year-long research process and we found no consensus to support a name change my like question I guess to you is like why do like why is the narrative that we need like this this consensus this impossibility like this overwhelming support that something is racist to like even change something in the first place like the first response of all these white people is always to launch a review consult with people blah 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 and they always kind of come back with this like same thing no consensus. Not everyone agrees. So I'm like, like, what do you make of this logic? Well,
2: it's just typical. I mean, they always find Indian to sign that treaty, don't they? I mean, they always find someone and, and or they make him a chief, right? And it, it's just such a typical part of our history, right? And, uh, and so they uh, it, it's just, you know, and I think that there was an education process that occurred within the Native community that was facilitated by social media. Uh, Native mm-hmm. people are, are incredibly um, we don't we are—I mean, more than most Native people. I think the last U.S. census put it like almost 70 percent of Native people, maybe more, closer to 75 percent, live off the reservation, right? Because mm-hmm. of ec- we are economic refugees from our homelands, purposely made so through U.S. policy, right? And mm-hmm. uh, and so um, I call myself an expatriate, right? And mm-hmm. uh, and so they, um, so it's very difficult for us to organize. Even on the reservation, it can be very difficult. Um, because it's a very rural population without a lot of infrastructure, roads and things like that, or even cell phone service, it's very difficult to organize on the reservation itself, too. I mean, I did a documentary in 2013 on the Bakken, uh, interviewing folks uh, at the Fort Berthold Reservation. They told me that it was very difficult for them to meet in person with each other. I mean, the, they had flooded their um, communities um, in the 1950s and built this huge lake called Lake Sakakawia. And basically made their communities, instead of like a couple miles apart, they are now 120 miles apart, right? And the roads were, they had huge traffic because of all the fracking, the white, the water trucks. So meeting in person was almost impossible. So they had to meet through safe, through fa- Facebook. They created Facebook groups to meet and discuss issues and to act upon them. And so, you know, it's, uh, so I think that social media played a huge role in educating the Native community concerning this issue. And there was a certain level of education that was required, Um, I live in Oregon and and before I got involved in this issue, uh, there was a young man here who was really pushing the issue and and it was, and the whole movement to get rid of native mascots in the high schools here in Oregon was already happening, right? I, I think that by 2013, I came to the issue fairly late, to be honest. And, uh, and so, uh, but they, uh, and so this young man, you know, he like did this whole presentation, this PowerPoint. And, um, and so he, um. Yeah, and, and he convinced a lot of elders. They had never thought about it that way. I think often we spend a lot of time trying to survive, trying to adapt, trying to, you know, get along and, and sometimes we don't have time or or whatever to really think about these things. You know, I mean, even with my parents' activism as young people in college, I as a young person didn't really think a lot about the Cleveland Indians. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it wasn't until I went to college and I was confronted with this, you know, resurgence of trying to reclaim the Dartmouth Indian that I was forced to deal with it, you know? And, uh, and so, uh, so he did a great job of educating, um, uh, the community here in the Portland area. And a lot of elders I spoke to who came to my protests were like, he helped us understand this. We didn't understand it before until we saw his PowerPoint, you know? Uh, and so it's, it's a process. I think, um. And, and certainly social media has been a huge boon to the native community nationally uh, to be able to, because you, know, you don't understand what it's like to be part of a minority group where your feelings, your thoughts, your experiences are not, there's no place in which they're being intellectually sort of discussed. Um, you have to do all the work on your own. Uh, you know, you know, If you open the New Yorker, no one's discussing your issues in a meaningful manner, in mm-hmm. a consistent manner, you know, or the New York Times, you have to do that work on your own as an individual Uh, and so what social media and particularly Facebook because a lot of our elders are on Facebook uh is the ability to really discuss these things in depth in long terms with with each other and come to terms with with what we're dealing with and um and so this has been a huge part of it and and so it was um so yeah, it took some time to motivate. And 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 if you see studies that actually, and not really, there's only one study I've know of that actually made sure that people were enrolled, uh, was the uh, California State University Hayward study, uh, which was actually conducted at Wows, which makes the study a little weaker, I think. But uh, according yeah. to you know strict social studies, you know randomization factors, you know c- uh, concerns. But uh, but what they found was that basically um, almost seventy percent of Native people understood the issue. And, and, uh, and then the smaller portion were pro and then another smaller portion were actually, uh, sort of indifferent. So that is probably the most accurate, um, study I would say. And as far as proportions that I know in my own family, right. And so (laughs) that reflect what I actually know in real life. So it's, um, yeah, it's, I think most native people understand what it means to be mascotted. And, and, you know, when, um, When Dan Snyder was trying to, uh, you know, try to mess with us, you know, he was trying to bring in the Red Mesa Indians from the Navajo Nation down to his game in Phoenix. And then he was also trying to bring Zuni people down to his game in Phoenix. He was busting. He was mm-hmm. he was providing buses to take them down there, and you know, co- chartered co- coach buses. And uh, and I was tar- I was tasked with talking to the governor uh, in uh, Pueblos. A lot of their leaders are called governors because of the Spanish contacts history. And so mm-hmm. I and I've been a community organizer in. Uh, um, in Akama and Zuni Pueblos. Um, and so I contacted the governor and I talked to him. And at first he didn't understand the issue because when people live on the reservation to a certain extent, they are they are buffered from the reality of being a sole Indian person facing these issues, right? And, uh, and, when, and most native youth don't go to a high school or most of the people are Indian. Most native youth are the only native person in their high school. Right, so they had to deal this alone right so i was talking to the zuni governor and i explained the issue to him at first he was sort of like oh you know dan snyder's like could sit in his box and all this stuff and, I would, and after by the end of it he was just like he totally got the issue he was like right on i get this i understand this and he refused to sit in the box with dan snyder you know mm-hmm. so it oh, does oh. require a certain level of talking um of explaining the issue and then and native people understand it once it's explained to them and and they they understand it on other levels too. Like he understood the issue representation in Hollywood already, and he was able to you know uh, immediately get after like just if mean, he was like more enthusiastic at the end than I was about the issue. <laughs> so but yeah, it's wow. uh, yeah. yeah. So
0: no, that's 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 fascinating. Um, and to be honest, like there there isn't there's a couple more questions that I think we have for you, but really you've covered so much ground here. Um, yeah. It's really fascinating and. Um, You really uh, delved in all the sort of different directions that I wasn't even necessarily um, anticipating. So I I really just appreciate your commentary in general. The next one is a little bit more for me, I think, um, just because I'm going to ask something about something that kind of I'm typically thinking about because I think a lot about questions around fandom and then um, athletic labor. And um, you mentioned at the beginning, uh, or much earlier uh, in the conversation, that you weren't much of a sports fan yourself, if I got you right. Or maybe you just said you weren't a base, like really a a Cleveland baseball team fan. Um, But you said you weren't much of a sports fan. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I didn't really follow professional sports very much.
0: Okay, yeah, that's fair. The reason i bring that up is i'm 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 curious if you might see a broader connection between the way in which fans in general invest their identities in the labor of largely racialized athletic workers because this is something i think is happening as part of the process of fandom in north american sports in general we see a lot of this right like largely white fans investing in racialized bodies in order to extract the kind of pleasure meaning Value often from the sacrifice of those bodies in terms of the, the kind of punishment that is inflicted upon them, right? That's to me is like a dominant kind of aspect of the way in which we conduct professional sports or elite sport on this continent.
2: So it was very interesting to me when I went to my first like in person, uh, not your mascot protest um, with at, at an actual um, game, right? And this was uh, in San Jose, in the San Jose, Santa Clara area in the bay area san francisco bay area i um i noticed that a lot of the fans probably 30 percent of the fans entering the game were were black americans right we're black
1: yeah And, and it was
2: interesting uh to see them sort of walking by and sort of looking kind of bemused and sort of laughing at native families protesting like there was basically like this huge line of native families protesting and getting angry and stuff like that and and you and one of my one of my friends, Mark Dadigan, he was a photographer for Indian Country Today, he got a photo of like of that. And it was really kind of sad, you know, it's like to see that these black fans don't understand our issue, you know, are kind of right. laughing at us. Do you know what I mean, and, um, and the other thing was that when I went to um, I went to the Cleveland, Indi- Cleveland Indians opener, uh, you know, in my my home to where I was born. Right. Uh, in 2015. Mm-hmm. And and I noticed that almost all of the fans there were white. You know, like 98. I mean, there were. I didn't see any yeah. even black, you know, uh, Clevelanders at all. And I was just like, this is interesting. And I was talking, I was interviewing fans as they were entering the uh, stadium. And many of them were drunk, obviously, <laughs> which was sort of unfair sure, yeah. for me to interview them. And, wow. uh, <laughs> and they were like, many of them were like, uh, Cleveland is a very immigrant community. Uh, an immigrant community from the early 1900s, right? It's still sort of because there wasn't a lot of fine, um, a lot of economic growth in the late 20th century. They are sort of frozen in those economic in those ethnic groups, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I was interviewing them and one guy was like, well, I would be fine if it was a Slovak. There's like a large Slovakian community there. And, you know, mm-hmm. like, and I guess there's some sort of local um, sort of stereotype of Slovaks wearing white socks. I don't know. <laughs> and he's okay. like, yeah. And, Nor
0: do I. Yeah. yeah
2: and <laughs> sort of a Cleveland thing, you know. And I think that was something that my parents, my mother in particular, liked, was like the ethnic identity of white people there. It was something that she could relate to, you know, like Hungarians mm-hmm. and Bohemians and all these folks that were there. And if you go to Cleveland, they have this amazing, these amazing gardens that were, the land was donated by Rockefeller, but it's all these amazing gardens celebrating each ethnic immigrant community. And there is one for Native Americans as well. And um, and, and so it's just the nature of Cleveland is sort of different than what most people understand. And, and I found that very interesting. And even though when I went to Cleveland, everybody there said the same thing. They were all like, they found out I was born there. And the response was like, come back. <laughs> i had not heard that any other place except on the reservation <laughs> oh, and i was really, just like yeah. it was because you know they've lost like 50 percent of their population sure. since the 70s and it's just like you know come back you know and stuff even from these these cleveland indian fans you know yeah. and so um, but a study actually i should cite a study done by uh emory university i think it was done in 2015 where they sort of um they actually took a look at the largest data set of of, of uh, college, you know, the the NAACP when they forced a lot of college um, teams to get rid of their native mascots, right? And there was like a, a data set of like I want to say twenty two different teams that gave up their mascots, and so they studied that. And what they found was that two years after giving up their Native American mascot, their actually te- their audience involvement increased. Right. Interesting. So the thing is that and, and they actually gave a, a dollar amount to how much uh, these different professional franchises were losing per year because they had a mascot that was actually sort of distancing their audience. Mm-hmm. And it was actually like um, it was actually quite a bit for a very um, a, a low, you know, a more impoverished team like the Cleveland Indians. It was like almost two million dollars a year they were losing. Because their yeah. mascot was actually sort of not appealing to a lot of their fans, and sure. and so and 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 so that was an interesting study to me. I think um, the presumption that, and certainly the presumption that Dan Snyder has, where you know he says, "I will not change the name. You can quote me in all caps," you know, is that that you know if they change the name, there'd be this huge problem. But actually, I don't think they actually know their fan base enough, and that actually what the data shows is that they may actually increase their uh, audience engagement if they got rid of the mascot.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And and I think that you're right, like that I find that extremely compelling from kind of a just um a sort of marketing standpoint, right, from the team's perspective, if they want to like build their brand as much as possible and capitalize on the largest market they can have, um, that's really compelling, right? Like, why would you want to turn off a possible sector of your fan base? Because the truth is the people who are so passionately invested in the team, they actually like would care about the name and even want to cling to the name, are very unlikely to ultimately abandon the team. Just because the name changes, even if they don't want the name to change, right? So that that makes a lot of sense to me. Too. And then there's a huge uh, audience that yeah. they're
2: actually sort of sidelining by this.
0: Exactly. I mean, exactly. They're not even right. aware
2: of. So
0: that's it. That's the, that's the audience to bring in. The thing that I was thinking about in addition to that was sort of a different question. I think that less from the standpoint of, um, you know, the team's own economic interests, which frankly I don't really care about personally. Um, but the, the the reason why the fans are so invested. Because, and you've given us really compelling explanations from the standpoint of race, for specifically, like what it does for whiteness, which I think is really powerful. And um, I, I have no reason to um, to question it at all. But I was just in terms of my own understanding of fandom that I was wondering if there's a way which just just as fans invest in the ath- the body of the athlete to kind of extract something from the body of the athlete, they become like an avatar for those sort of desires of the fan. If the kind of mascot was in a weird way doing the same thing, except that this way, in this sense, right, the kind of appropriation uh, and the violence of that fandom and, and the who it's being taken from is like not just the individual player's body, but like an entire community right across of of indigenous people um across the country who are suffering in a very real way because like in order to fuel that fandom um you know that was just something i was thinking about but um i I find your explanations really convincing
2: um well i think that the study that dr stephanie Freiberg did of of how uh, native youth respond to the mascot is is pretty compelling i mean my theory about why one of the things that was interesting from her study was that she found that native students who said that they were okay with mascots, right? Native mascots actually experienced the greatest decline in, in self-esteem. And I would say this is because they're expending a lot of energy, making it okay. Energy they could use for other things. You know, that, that's the, that's, that's sort of a price we pay. And it's, it's another form of, of um extraction
1: earlier in the podcast you said that like this is so sort of part of our dna and i think what what is so um striking to me uh is that sport is also oftentimes used in that same rhetoric like sport is like the fabric of sort of uh, north america or, or like our our colonialist societies like sport is so vital to that. So when these things can manifest and, and continue to be used and images appropriated um, racist images uh, appropriated um, and used in sport, I like, this is actually like reflective of white supremacy at the the societal level. And I think we've talked about that like quite a bit in this podcast. So I'm grateful for you sharing all of your, your words and your insights with us. I'm curious, maybe just a a simple question. Do you anticipate that we're finally going to see the end of the, uh, of of native mascots and the appropriation of indigenous imagery um, by the sports world and, and by white people in the sports world?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think it's, and that would be due to the Black Lives Matter movement. I think we are mm-hmm. seeing a real end. And I actually, it's interesting. Driving to my mom's house, I I wanted to tag where I was driving along, and it was the Columbia River Gorge, and I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Do you know what I mean I? Mm-hmm. I mean Columbia, Columbus. You know, I mean the river is named after a boat named Columbia, but of course that boat was named after Columbus. You know, yeah. and uh and it's uh you know I just I, and I started sent out a. a And Instagram saying, you know, can we change the name back to, I don't know. I know the Sahapsuk name is Nituana, right? And, Mm -hmm. um, and of course it's a big, it's a long river. So there's other tribes that have names for it as well. And, uh, and there's actually an international um, uh, treaty going a Columbia river treaty going on right now between Canada and the United States, which the tribes want to be a part party to Mm -hmm. which which they're being, uh, which the U S government is refusing them uh, rights to participate in this treaty about the use of their of their river, right? And uh, right. and so you know I hope this continues. I, I think it will. I think and once again, I it's you know the black community changed the parameters of how we discuss these things. What's acceptable? For so long we've walked around in our lives with these horrible statues. I mean, when I visited. For some reason, uh, colleges in Virginia keep inviting me to come over and speak. <laughs> and I was there, and I, I was at the University of Virginia this past year speaking. And I, they, and some of the um, staff and students, faculty took me to this, this horrible statue there. And, um, and of course, the University of Virginia was designed by Jefferson, right? The yeah. whole campus, and, and it was built by slaves, right? and uh and it's uh you know i went there and i looked at the statue the statue is uh honoring um william clark's brother uh who was the uh he was considered the guy who basically um conquered the the uh you know they conquered the indians in in ohio valley and the northwest territories right and uh and and in the, on the statue behind him there's a native woman crouching in fear he dominates her on a horse and uh and and they want and, and now these statues are coming down you know where before yeah. you know i mean i mean a woman died at charlottesville virginia with yeah. that protest yeah. and uh and, and the statue remained you know, and now these statues yeah. are coming down. I was invited to go to San, the city of San Francisco actually invited me out to come and interview the Native American uh, community there, the urban community. while they After the statue, a really racist statue that was there showing a conquistador or, you know, uh, or maybe it was a threatening a Native person and crouching down. You know, it was in front of City Hall there in San Francisco. It was called Into the Trail, I think. and um, and, and so they removed it. And I was there, you know, and uh and then they uh and they did a whole thing where they put native people native native the local native urban community was allowed to come and stand on the pedestal and have their photo taken. Right. And then I interviewed uh community members afterwards. And it was just like, you know, this is what we you know, there was just something so incredibly heat. I mean, I lived in San Francisco for a couple of years and about four years and and uh you know, and I I was a journalist there and I walked by that statue and, and there was nothing we could do to get rid of it. And, you know, and, and Union Square in, in San Francisco, there's a statue there um, which is in honor of the, uh, the uh, defeat of the Philippines, right, where they killed a million Filipinos in three days, right? Mm-hmm. There's all these statues uh, to, to celebrate white supremacy in this country. And we have to live with them and walk around them and use those words and those names. And, you know, I really do think we're at the moment where that's going to stop where that's no longer acceptable. It's never been acceptable to me. I mean, Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, from, I wrote this piece about Thanksgiving and about how my mom, um, you know, when, um, when she was when I was like in kindergarten, she explained to me a lot of these things. And even as a five year old, I was so, so outraged to find out, you know, how this country was founded, on the taking of our lands, you know, you have a native mother who's explaining this to you. And, and, you know, and I wanted to do something about it, even as a small child. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and finally, you know, and I remember in the in the piece, I talk about how my mother told me when I, if they teach, you know, when you sing um, land of the pilgrim's pride, you know, to sing uh, Land of the Indian's Pride, you know, and I did, I was embarrassed, because I was the only one doing it, <laughs> and, uh, and, but it was something I did, and, and I did it softly, because I was like, you know, I wanted to do it, but I couldn't bring myself to sing, even as like a five or six-year-old, to sing Land of the Pilgrim's Pride, you know, and so my mother directed me to sing Land of the Indian's Pride, and I did, and, but it's often been a thing that we've done on our own. You know, and and white people have never understood what we're talking about. And so I think it's quite a gift to be able to live in a country, in a place um, where people understand what we're talking about.
1: Dan Snyder, Donald Trump, like these people are are the same in my view like they're they're both fueling the exact same project they're They're fueling not just the massive structural racism, but actually, as you put it, the overt white supremacy that I think we've seen kind of reemboldened since two thousand and sixteen. The Washington name is like certainly not a name of honor like that team was very much built by a white supremacist uh, supremacist and and protecting that is actually protecting white supremacy and that's really important i think to this discussion and and one of the things that i consistently see so i i'm i I live in in canada um and one of the things that i consistently see is that like in canadian discourse is that this isn't happening in canada canadian like canadians aren't racist which i would like certainly say is absolutely not true but yet we see we, we see this Edmonton football franchise and Canadians are still clinging to that name as well. And I think for full context here, that's a community-owned football team. That is like a, a, a very specific, it's a representation of that community. So I, I don't necessarily think I have like an overall question, um, but perhaps if I could just like get your thoughts on, Um, how you see this as a sort of global project that that goes beyond just the United States.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, this is a problem all over the world. Uh, People stereotype native people. I mean, there are, uh, there are teams in Europe with these stereotypical names in England, you know, uh, in in the British Mm -hmm. Isles, uh, you know, and, and I know that there there's a huge issue with um, fake native jewelry Um, There was a huge $35 million bust done by, ironically enough, the Fish and Wildlife Service. (laughs) It shows you how we're grouped with animals enforcing the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, right? A Filipino made uh, fake Native jewelry. And and you can go to Thailand and see Thai people dressed up as natives selling you native made ju- na- native jewelry, quote unquote. And uh, so it's a it's a problem all over the world. And of course, you know, that but that was a, um, a stereotype promoted by um, by America, uh, particularly with the Wild West shows, um, and, you know, that toured the world and were seen by 10 million people and even folks like, you know, Kuss, uh, sitting Bull participate in them. Uh, and these promoted stereotypes about us, right? Um, mm-hmm. These stereotypes have different manifestations in different countries, but they do dehumanize us. Um, uh, weird fact, uh, the uh, the Nuremberg race um, trials, river in, in Germany during the Nazi period found that Lakota, a Lakota man was a, an honorary Aryan because of their stereotypical ideas about native culture right and uh so but it's uh it has you know it's um yeah it it promotes stereotypes i think every study has found that these are mostly uh, i know the university of buffalo uh did a study uh, a survey of studies in 2015 that found that these um that these stereotypes promoted are primarily negative you know they're not positive so uh but and like I mentioned, my my husband's great great grandfather, you know, was writing against uh, stereotypes of native of First Nations people in Canada in the 1950s. You know, mm-hmm. so this is an ongoing problem. And and I am um, I know that there's been um, a folk guy, a guy Brad I worked with. He uh, you know, he's from um, from up there near uh, Toronto uh, tribe there. He's been filing. Um, um, I know I can't speak to it in detail, but civil rights cases. Mm-hmm. You know, there's actually like yeah. a a court you can go to to challenge these things and and things like that so
0: yes well jacqueline keeler thank you so much for your time we've taken a lot of it uh this (laughs) evening uh but we did it because you had so much to say that i think we need to hear uh, and we hope our listeners um listen to every moment of this one because it was as important as any we have done so far thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your views uh, and I hope you're 100% right. Uh, and this is the end of Native Mascot tree. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The End of Sport. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at Pod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.